five kids. Um, three of them are here with us today. You can meet them at lunch, um, and two are not with us today. Um, so Chiba, if you don't know, is part of the Tokyo metro area. Uh, it's the largest metropolitan area in the world. Um, and I grew up in Fairfax County, so part of this D.C. Uh, metro area, the DMV, as it's sometimes called. Um, it's a pretty big metro area here in, uh, in uh, the Washington area. Japan's a little bit bigger. So um, uh, 38 million people in the Tokyo metro. By comparison, that's equal to the combined population of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Delaware, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Tennessee. That's the 38 million people in our area. So um, our family has been home this past year on uh, what we call uh, HMA, home, home mission assignment, home ministry assignment. They used to call it furlough when the missionaries would come home, but then it sounded like you're just kind of doing nothing for a year, um, and that's not really the case. Uh, it's, actually, we've been quite busy doing a lot of traveling during our time back, uh, reporting back to uh, churches that have supported us, um, visiting new churches, um, building up uh, support, and um, yeah, primarily uh, our year's been focused on raising uh, new support. Um, unfortunately for us, um, Japan is uh, probably the most expensive mission field in the world, um, so it's, it's quite expensive to be serving there. Uh, but by God's grace, we have um, uh, about 99% uh, of our funding, um, which is really great. Um, and, and thanks in big part to this church, and we're really grateful uh, for you guys for partnering with us, and we look forward to uh, a long uh, relationship. Um, Walt and I were actually in seminary together, so we've, we've known each other for, what, 14, 15, 15 something years now. Um, so you can, uh, would ask you to pray for us as we make our transition. As I said, I have five kids. My oldest daughter, Kylie, is, uh, she just turned 19. She's a freshman at James Madison University, and we are leaving her in America when we return to college, uh, when we return to, to Japan. Um, so that's, that's a new thing for us. I know many families send their kids off to college, and that's, that's difficult, um, but instead of being a couple hours away or even across the country, we're going to be on the other side of the world. Um, so that's a little bit hard, um, probably more for me than anyone else, um, but uh, it's, uh, we're excited for her to be able to, to do that. Our, our next eldest uh, is our son, Josiah. He's 17. We actually sent him back to Japan already by himself. So he started his senior year of school because um, he's only got one more year back in Japan. We wanted to have that full time before he comes back, hopefully, to go to college here in the States. So when, uh, as Walt mentioned, when we return, we're going to initially focus on language. During our first three-year term, um, we just kind of jumped right into ministry, mostly English-based, and we studied language part-time. But um, they say um, the three most difficult languages for an English speaker to learn are Chinese, uh, Japanese, and Arabic. Um, so Japanese is one of them, and uh, it takes really about two years of full-time study to, that they estimate um, to, to get language. So when we get back, we're going to initially focus on language um, before we help plant this uh, new church in Center City, Chiba. I do want to mention... Uh, not only are we having the, the lunch uh, after the service, we have a little display set up in the foyer out there um, with some prayer cards and other information. Uh, you should have received a, a flyer about our ministry. It's got a lot of uh, good information there. Um, but if you want to get a prayer card, stick on your fridge. We'd love for you to be praying for us. Sometimes, you know, traveling all around, it's been so encouraging as we, we visit people and they say, you know, my son broke his arm a couple years ago in Japan. And they say, how's your son doing? Like they, 
They've seen the, the requests we've made and they've been praying for. Sometimes people apologize to me. Say, I'm so sorry. We only pray for you once a week. So are you kidding me? <laughs> That's a, that is amazing. It's so encouraging to know there's people, um, you know, even, you know, once a month, whatever, just that there's people praying for us when they, maybe when you see that picture on your fridge or, or wherever, um, when your family's praying for missionaries, um, we really appreciate it. And, and we, we truly believe that it's, it's meaningful, um, that it brings a blessing. We also, we do an email newsletter um, about quarterly, and uh, if you'd like to sign up for that, there's a sign-up sheet at our little station also. You can put your name down there. Um, and if you would like to support us financially, you can, there's a little box you can check on that. But um, don't feel obligated to check the box. If you just want to get our newsletter, please, please sign up for that. We'd really appreciate it. So why are we in uh, Japan? Well, um, y- you may not realize this, but um, the Japanese are, are the second largest unreached people group in the world. Um, the Christian population, we say the evangelical Christian population is less than half of 1%, maybe about 0.4, 0. 0.3, depending on who's, who's sharing um, the numbers. Um, something like 1 in 250 people in Japan is Christian. And when you think of an unreached people group, you may imagine, you know, some tribe in the Amazon basin or something. But uh, Japan is unreached in the sense that there's never been a church, an indigenous church of, of Japanese people that have had uh, just the, the critical mass to reach their own people. Um, and, and so that's why we are, we are there trying to help get that church established. You would, you would expect, based on those numbers, that Christmas would not be a big thing in Japan. Um, but surprisingly, it is. Um, it's quite popular. Um, about 40 years ago, in one of the greatest advertising campaigns of all time, uh, this, um, this guy, um, he put the, the slogan, Christmas Niwa Kentucky which means Christmas is for Kentucky, as in Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, he managed to convince basically the entire country that uh, the way to celebrate Christmas is with the Colonel's Secret blend of spices. And uh, so uh, at Christmas time, um, it's super popular to get this, um, the Christmas uh, dinner. You have to register a couple months in advance to make sure you can get it. And so it's, you know, a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and some biscuits and sides. And I think a, a bottle of wine is included in it. And, um, but eat not just Kentucky Fried Chicken, but like a lot of all the grocery stores, they sell fried chicken. Um, and it's this really big deal in Japan at Christmas. And um, I remember talking to a Japanese person. And I said, ah, oh, you know, uh, this is the first time I've ever had uh, fried chicken at Christmas. And she, she said, what? This, I mean, this Christmas is about fried chicken, right? And, and she just had no idea. Um, she thought it was this really big um, American, I guess, or Christmas tradition to have fried chicken. Um, and I really disappointed her when I told her that. But um, so, in fact, Christmas, is, it's really popular in Japan everywhere you go. Um, this is, it's September, right? So here in America, it's about time to start getting the Christmas decorations up at the, at the mall. And, but it's the same in Japan, that you'll see uh, all these Christmas decorations that, that are set up. And even um, if you go to a coffee shop, if you walk around the mall, you hear Christmas music playing. And, and it's interesting because in America, um, because there's a lot of sensitivity to, uh, you know, different religions and not offending people, most of the Christmas music you hear is very secular Christmas music. You know, it's Let It Snow and um, Baby It's Cold Outside and these kind of songs uh, that have nothing to do with, with Christmas and, and, and Christ. In Japan, um, you actually hear, 
explicitly Christian Christmas music playing, sometimes instrumental, but sometimes even with the words, you know, being sung in English, and these, you know, Christmas carols and these kind of things. Um, and so it's amazing that Christ's name is being lifted up, his truth is being um, really testified to by these songs. Um, but the people in Japan, they don't understand it. Um, they, don't, they don't know what Christmas is for. They don't um, understand um, about the birth of Christ. The religions of Japan are uh, officially Shinto and Buddhism. Um, that they, They're both really practiced, but really the reality is they're kind of a veneer over the culture. And I would say the, the true religion of Japan is, is atheism and uh, agnosticism, materialism. Um, with some sprinkling of Shinto and, and Buddhism on top. And the reality is, those religions uh, do not give people hope. Um, and in the absence of knowing that you are a being created in God's image, that, that there is a God out there who gives life meaning, um, people in Japan seek out their identity um, primarily through success and, um, and through other things like that. There's a real search for identity. And I, I think that this message today speaks to that. So this is a sermon I actually um, I wrote when I was in Japan, looking in the book of Acts, looking at the church in Antioch. Um, so one of our primary ministries, as I said, we, um, we're not fluent in Japanese yet. So during our first term, one of the things we did was work with a, uh, an international bilingual um, church service of a, a Japanese church, but one of the services is, is bilingual and international. It's called a live international and um, it's really a, quite a, a diverse group of people, which is actually very similar to the church in Antioch. Um, now, this passage, this particular passage, comes uh, after the breaking out of persecution against the early church. Um, the, uh, the, the Jews, they didn't want the church to grow, and they thought if we persecute it, that'll stop the church from growing. But what happened is as the persecution intensified in Jerusalem, it, it caused the believers to, to flee and to spread throughout um, the ancient Near East um, and then you know, further, uh, and, and carrying with them the gospel message as they went. So where, where man meant a persecution to stop the church, God used it to grow the church. A lot of that early persecution was led by a man named Saul, right? And then, but then in Acts 9, Saul himself became a Christian. You can imagine what it was like, this, this guy who'd been trying to kill all the Christians, he shows up in Jerusalem, he says, I'm a Christian now, but no one wanted to meet him because they thought it was a trick, right? They didn't want to come in contact with him, but there was a man named Barnabas, and Barnabas uh, befriended Paul, reached out to him, got to know him, and then brought him to meet the apostles and the other disciples, um, and so Paul got to know them. He began a preaching ministry in Jerusalem, preaching Christ. Now, the Jews who had been his allies had now become his enemies. They decided to kill him, but he escaped. He went uh, to his hometown of Tarsus, and, and he really disappears from the Acts account for a number of years. And that's where this passage picks up. This is Acts 11, verses 19 through 30, and this is God's word. It's, um, it's inspired and inerrant, and uh, everything that I say to you today and I share with you um, is fallible. Uh, these are my words. Hopefully, they're, they're um, glorifying to God and, and they're, um, they're faithful, but, but they're my words. Um, the words I'm going to share with you now, these are the words of the Bible. This is God's word. And so please 
If you listen to nothing else, listen to God's word now. Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just um, ask you to bless now the preaching of your word. Father, would you speak through me, uh, speak to all of us. Father, pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would anoint uh, my words, but our hearts as well. Um, God, so we may understand and your gospel could be applied to our hearts. Father, lead us to conviction and lead us to the grace of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. If I ask the question, what are you? I wonder how you would answer me. If I said, what are you? Um, you might uh, answer by telling me about your job. So if I met you, hey, I'm Tom, you know, oh, what are you? Oh, I'm a, I'm a business person. I'm an engineer. I'm a doctor. I'm a teacher. I'm, a, I'm in the military. I'm a, I'm a lieutenant. I'm a, I'm a captain. I'm a student. Maybe uh, you would answer me by talking about your um, relationship, maybe to your family, to others. What are you? I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a son or daughter. I'm a, I'm a grandparent. I'm a boyfriend. I'm a girlfriend. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. Maybe you'd answer with your, um, your hobby or sport. Uh, what are you? I'm a musician. I'm a football player. I'm a runner. I'm a gamer. I'm a crafter. I'm an Oriole. I'm a national. Um, I'm a big Nationals fan. They were both terrible this year. But one was more terrible than the other. I just want to say that. Um, maybe, maybe you would answer me with your nationality or your race. And what are you? I'm an American. I'm Japanese. I'm Ugandan. I'm Mexican. I'm white. I'm African-American. I'm Asian. I'm Hispanic. Maybe your identity uh, is defined by your, uh, your social status. You might, say, you might not say this out loud, but what are you? I'm rich. I'm poor. I'm the boss. I'm just a rookie. I'm just learning the ropes. 
Maybe you'd answer me with your politics. What are you? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm liberal. I'm conservative. I'm moderate. I'm independent. You know, identity can drive us apart. And if, if you look at the world in basically any culture, people are separated by these kinds of differences. And we tend to seek out people who are like us. They look like us. They act like us. They think like us. They talk like us. And it's easy to relate to people like that. And it's challenging to deal with people who look and act and, and think and talk differently than us. If you... Uh, you don't need to go any further than your Facebook page to, to see how true this is and how often, um, you know, we, we, we so often are looking for an echo chamber. You know, here's what I believe, and I, and I want to hear everyone affirming that and agreeing with that. And there's so little uh, constructive dialogue that goes on in our culture today as people are seeking out people that think the same as them. What this passage shows us uh, and demonstrated in Antioch is that the church doesn't have to be this way. So we see, um, as we look at the church in Antioch, we see first the gospel crosses geographic and national barriers. Verse 19 says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And uh, maybe when you, uh, you... Oops, the wrong way. When you hear... Uh, when, you, when you're reading the book of Acts and, uh, and you hear these place names, sometimes they just kind of go right over our heads because, like, I don't know any of those places. I don't know where they are. Um, but uh, it might be helpful to realize. So here, I got my laser. Pew. This is uh, Jerusalem is this area here. So that's where they kind of started from. Uh, Phoenicia would be this coastline up along here. Um, Cyprus is this island out of here. Antioch is right here. Um, it mentions um, also people came from Cyrene. Where's Cyrene? Cyrene is right here in uh, North Africa. Modern-day Libya is uh, where that, that area is. Um, there's an, in Acts 13, which comes later, uh, it's talking about the, uh, the leadership in the church in Antioch. It says, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, he was a Levite from Cyprus. So part of the Jewish diaspora, a Jew living in, not in Jerusalem, but out in, in Cyprus. Um, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Niger was the Latin uh, word meaning black, so he was likely from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, so again, uh, from Africa. Um, Monoton, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So a guy who grew up uh, alongside the royal family over here, probably a very privileged person to be a, a lifelong friend with um, the king. Um, then it mentions Saul, a Jew from Tarsus, right here. Um, so they were a very diverse group that, uh, that came together um, in that early church. And you had people crossing uh, geographical and national barriers to share the gospel. We also see the gospel crosses... Um, um, the gospel crosses language barriers. So verse 19 says, At first they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But in 20 it says, There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
Now, Hellenists were people who spoke Greek. Um, you know, every time I preach in Japan, I'm reminded of how challenging it is to preach uh, in multiple languages. So in our, our church, Live International, um, we do everything bilingually. So if we sing a song, we'll usually alternate verses between English and Japanese. If someone gets up and speaks or prays, we, we translate everything. And so when I preach my sermon, I will uh, I'll have a translator with me, and I'll preach a line, and then they'll translate it, and I'll preach another line, and I'll translate it. And if my Japanese brother preaches, um, we translate it to English. And it's, it can be a little bit tedious. I think, you, you know, it's kind of slow. You can't do a 30-minute sermon. You only have about 12 minutes of content because it takes so long uh, to do the translation work. Um, it's hard, but it's worth it because we're, we're bringing the gospel across these language barriers. Now, um, someone like Paul would have not only spoken Hebrew but and Aramaic, but uh, Greek as well. Uh, but as the gospel spread and they went to new areas, they were forced to, um, to learn those languages. So either, you know, maybe they, they took the long time that it takes to, to learn a new language. Um, I'm, uh, that's a hard thing to do. You know, I'm, I'm trying to, to do that now, um, you know, learning a new language. Um, maybe they worked with interpreters. And they probably did a little bit of both. Um, but the, the gospel crossed those language barriers. We also see the gospel crosses cultural barriers. You see, the Hellenists, they not only spoke Greek, but they thought Greek. Um, they were culturally Greek, and so they're very different um, from the, the, the Jews where the, the church had started. That's another challenge that we see in our church, um, trying to bring people together from different cultures. Uh, of course, we have Japanese and Americans, um, but we also have Filipinos, Australians, Koreans, Congolese, Chinese, Norwegians, Russians, we've had people from all over uh, part of this church. And, uh, you know, we, we have different values. We have different um, ways of, of communicating with each other. We have uh, different things that we think are funny and, and, and different ways of displaying emotions and different worldviews. I visited a church recently, and, and, and the pastor was talking. He said, you know, this church, we're a hugging church. And he said, you come to this church, we're going to hug you. And he said, there's, you know, there's this kind of hug, and there's the, the, the bro hug and the, the pat on the back hug. And he said, there's like the hug that kind of goes on a little bit too long, and it's uncomfortable, and like, when's this person going to let go of me? And I thought, you know, in Japan, every hug is the little bit uncomfortable, when's this person going to let go of me hug? Because people in Japan, they're, they're, they're much um, less sort of physical in, in their, their contact and how they greet people. In fact, if you were to come to Japan if you're visit, um, and you met a person new, and you put your hand out to shake their hand, oh, they don't do that. So when you meet someone in Japan, you, you bow, and oftentimes you, you present your, um, your business card. And so you meet someone, you give them a business card, and they exchange business cards, and you look at theirs, and you say, what, you know, are you, how important are you, is the big thing they're trying to determine um, by this card. Um, but I'll tell you, if you were to come to our church service, and meet um, a Japanese pastor I work with or one of our other, you know, Japanese church members, um, they would probably come up to you and, and they would reach out their hand to shake your hand. Not because that's Japanese culture, but because they would say, well, you're American, this is American culture, and they're trying to reach out to you. And they might even come up and give you a hug. Because we're in this, this place where um, we're reaching out to one another. 
And I, as an American, I'm not going to go hug the Japanese. But, but they are starting to, you know, we're all trying to flex and, and, and reach one another. And so it's this kind of mixing bowl of, of cultures, all trying to, um, to bend and flex to each other. It's, it's hard to integrate different cultures that way. Uh, it takes grace and patience and sometimes a sense of humor. But what we see is it in the church in Antioch that they got past those cultural barriers to be one church. The gospel also crosses economic barriers. So verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 29 says, The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And so what you have was uh, the church in Antioch that had resources, sending those resources to another church that did not have resources. This is cross-cultural giving, missional giving. Um, that is, you know, for us going to serve in Japan, that is what this church is doing. You know, sending resources from places in the world where, where the church is, is healthy and strong to other parts of the world where it is not. Um, you know, sending those, those resources. And that's, that's great. But what we also see in this passage, it says, everyone according to his ability. You see, everyone was generous. As they heard about the need in Jerusalem, they all wanted to give. But they had different abilities. There were, there were rich and poor people together in the same church. Um, there were uh, income disparities existed. And that's what makes the church in Antioch so amazing to me. People came together despite differences in geography and language and cultural background, education, race, economic status. And what do you call a group like that? You know, what are you? I don't think they had a suitable term. They, they defied categorization. Imagine someone sees a meeting of the church and they ask, what, what are those people? How, how could one answer? Are, are they Jews? No? Well, yeah, some, some of them are, but not all of them. Are they Greeks? No, some of them are, but not all of them. Are they rich? Are they, are they poor? Are they, are they foreigners? Are they locals? Well, you know, some of them are all of, some of them fit all of those categories, but none of those categories fit all of them. Second half of verse 26 says, and in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. And maybe it's because there wasn't any other name to call this group of people that could define them. I'm convinced that this is part of the reason the church grew so quickly. People saw something different. They saw how the gospel could transcend all those barriers that, that usually kept people apart. Because they weren't um, and I think it's, it's no coincidence that the church in Antioch was the first to send out missionaries to the rest of the world. And they sent Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys because they were a group of people that were not focused on just being with people like themselves. The gospel compelled them to step outside their comfort zones and, and be in relationship across those barriers. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a very famous preacher, once said, when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. And what a lot of people will tell you is, if the church, if Christians were just more like the rest of the world, if you would just 
act like everyone else. Maybe keep your religion private and, and to yourself on Sunday morning. But if you were just like the rest of the world, you'd be so much more acceptable. Um, but that's a lie. That's just becoming the world. See, when the church is absolutely different from the world, when people see us and they say, there is something different that is happening there that I don't see anywhere else, that is when uh, she invariably attracts it. You know, maybe, uh, maybe you're here today and you're not really sure what it even means to be a Christian. Um, and there are many things that could describe you if I said, what are you? There's lots of things, but Christian is, is not one of them, and that's okay. Um, I'm really thankful that you are here, um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've come, and this message is for you. But maybe you're here and you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian a long time, but when you think about what are you, there's something else that comes to mind, something else that really defines you. Well, this message is also for you. I had a friend in college, and if you'd asked her, what are you, um, I think she might have said, maybe not out loud, but in her, in her heart, I think she might have said, I'm a murderer. So you see, she was, um, she was in high school, and uh, she had a boyfriend, and, uh, and she got pregnant. And she, was, uh, she wasn't ready to have a baby. She was a star athlete uh, on the basketball team, and uh, she thought, if I have a baby... It's going to ruin my life. And it was against her convictions, it was against her faith, but she decided to have an abortion. And that was something that she then carried with her, a guilt that she felt. And, and, when, and when she thought about what are you, I think what would come kind of bleeding out of her is, I'm a murderer. I think for a lot of us, when we think about what we are, that what kind of can come out of our minds is the mistakes that we've made, the things that, that we've done that we so regret and we cannot take back, and we think that's what defines me. Or maybe it's a loss that you have suffered that has left you hollowed out inside, and that is what just, that is like who you feel like you are. Or maybe it's an abuse that you have suffered, that you have gone through, and, and because of that, you feel like it, it's your identity. On the other hand, maybe you are here and, and, and you think that it's really the great things that you have accomplished that define you, things that you're proud of about yourself that you think give you, make you special. You know, we've, um, we've done a, a ton of traveling uh, during our, our, our time on the, back here in America, and we've you know, driven a lot, and as we drive, um, you know, I like, to, I like to get in that passing lane and set the cruise control, you know, about five miles over the speed limit and kind of make good time. But every once in a while, you know, you come up and there's that person sitting in the left lane going slow and not letting you by. And I always thought, if my car was equipped 
with a rocket launcher on the front, I would blow this person up and get them out of my way. And, um, and I'll tell you, it, 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 I was talking with my wife, Karen, about it, because I get angry, and I start saying mean things about the other cars and stuff. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm a good driver. And, uh, and we laugh about it, but, you know, the reality is, that's a little piece of my identity that I am proud of. And that when I look at other people who don't drive as good as I think I drive, that I look down on them. I lift myself up and I put them down. And as I'm driving, and you know, there's a little part of me that every time I pass another car, yes, I won. I beat you. And then sometimes there's that reckless driver who goes speeding past me, and I think, oh, what a terrible person. And they're breaking the law, and they're, you know, I'm better than them because they don't, uh, they're dangerous. There are a hundred different things. Those little things that we, we, we just, we seek out and we grab hold of, we think give us meaning and identity that make us kind of special. Probably most of you have seen the movie Toy Story, uh, about toys who, who come to life when the owner's not there. It's the story of um, Sheriff Woody, an uh, old wooden puppet, cowboy uh, sheriff. It's been the favorite toy of a little boy named Andy for a number of years, uh, voiced by Tom Hanks. But then one day, this new toy shows up, and he's, he's not some old-fashioned puppet. He is, uh, he is a modern, cool action figure, Buzz Lightyear, voiced by Tim Allen. And very quickly, Buzz Lightyear becomes Andy's favorite toy. And, uh, but the thing is, Buzz doesn't realize he's a toy. He thinks he's a real space ranger, and uh, so he and, uh, and Woody get in these arguments, and, and uh, you know, Woody says, Buzz, you are a toy. You aren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. And Buzz says, uh, I'm a space ranger, and I can fly. Well, there's this point later in the movie where, um, where he realizes he isn't special, and he isn't really a space ranger. They're, uh, they're at the neighbor's house. They're kind of they're trapped there. They're up on the second floor, and they're in the hallway. And, uh, and Buzz hears this voice. Buzz Lightyear, come in, Buzz Lightyear. And Buzz thinks, finally, I'm receiving an intergalactic transmission from, from Star Command. And he goes running into the room, to, thinking he's going to find this um, you know, satellite radio transmitter. But, but it's not a transmitter. It's a television. And what he's hearing is not um, headquarters calling in. It's a a TV commercial for him. And, and you hear this voice say, Buzz Lightyear, the world's greatest superhero, now the world's greatest toy. And, uh, and, and Buzz starts to process this. And he looks down his arm, he, he flips open his communicator, and, and he notices engraved in the plastic, made in Taiwan, on his arm. And as the commercial ends, you see rows and rows of identical Buzz Lightyear action figures all sitting there at the store, all waiting to be purchased. And there's a, you know, he's just, he's crushed. His identity is ripped away. 
And, and there's these, the words are echoing through his head where there's this little boy who's, you know, making the toy fly, and then across the bottom of the screen, it says the words, and the voiceover says, not a flying toy. And he's just, he's crushed, right? His identity is ripped away. But then, you know, he's like, no, that's not true. I know what I am. I'm a space ranger, and I can fly. And now the music starts to swell. And he starts climbing up the, the, the rail railing, the banister, and he, and he stands up and he looks out and there's a window out the house. And uh, he pops his wings out. And he looks and he says, you know what he says? To infinity and beyond. And he jumps. And for a moment, he's going towards this window. And he looks like he's flying. But then his momentum starts to fade, and you see that window start to drift further away, and as he turns, you see the look on his face of fear and understanding dawning on him, and he goes tumbling down the stairs, and he lands on the ground, and as the camera pans out, you see not only just the look of of lostness and, and brokenness in his face, but you see his body twisted, his arm broken off. It's this picture of being completely broken and lost and destroyed. You know, every one of us comes to that place in our lives where we feel broken and crushed and lost. Because if you have some identity that defines you, the day is going to come when it will disappoint you because uh, you'll be fired from your job or you'll get too old to do the things you used to be able to do or your candidate will lose the election. And none of those identities I mentioned earlier can carry the weight of ultimate meaning. And when you fail and when you fall, what is left of your identity? And if, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, I've never come to that place. I don't know what you're talking about, Tom. I'm very proud of what I am, and it gives me great meaning. Um, can I let you know a little secret? You still think you're a space ranger. It's not going to last. You see, the important thing is not what you are. It's who you belong to. Later on, Buzz has a conversation with Woody. And, 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 you know, Buzz is just, he's despondent. He's, I'm worthless. Nothing has any meaning. Years of academy training, wasted. And, and Woody says, you matter because there is a person who loves you. And he wrote his name on you. And Buzz lifts up his foot, and you see... Uh, uh, in a a child's handwriting, A-N-D-Y, Andy. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That name Christian, it means Christ ones. It means those who belong to Christ, those who have Christ's name upon them. 
If you are a Christian, it means you belong to him. Revelation 3.12, Jesus is talking to the church in Philadelphia. He says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and my own name. He places his name upon us. And not only that, Isaiah 49.16 says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. In a minute after the sermon, we're going to we're going to sing the song before the throne of God above. In the song, we sing these words, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. It means he will never forget those who belong to him. Christian. That is the only label. That is the only identity that can carry the weight of eternity. No matter what happens, the only true life comes from the one to whom you belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that, um, that, that from, from before time began, that, um, that you covenanted with Christ, that he chose to purchase us, that he said, I will pay the price it takes to buy my church, to buy each of us because he loved us so much. And Father, we are not worthy of such a sacrifice, but he chose us, he died for us, he gave everything, he paid the ultimate price to buy us, to make us his. And now, Father, we belong to you, your name is on us. God, I pray that we would find our identity in that. Father, many of those other things, they're, they're good, they're fine, but they don't give ultimate meaning. Father, may we draw our life from knowing that we are yours. You have redeemed us. We pray in the name of our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen.